Alan Ross, the noted Hebrew scholar, writes, the words flow so easily from our lips that we seldom stop to think about them. We casually talk about knowing the Lord. We say we talk to God in one way or another, hear from the Lord. We attend churches on Sunday to have, as we say, fellowship with God and with each other. There we celebrate the belief that He is our God with songs and hymns, but even these have become so familiar to us that in our minds we drift to other, more immediate concerns. And when we approach the Lord's table to eat, as it were, we often do not have enough time to appreciate what it means. In short, our worship services have become time-bound and routine. We've been so successful in fitting God into our important schedules that worship is often just another activity. But it should be anything but routine and ordinary. Our modern world is driven by economics and marketing, and bigger is, by common consent, better. Far too many churches have become market-based, consumer-driven organizations that do not do what they do to honor the Lord, but do what they do to compete with the church down the street. Since consumer Christians do not want to hear the Word of God, they are offended if they are preached to. Who are you to tell me what to do? And in Bible teaching is considered passe, if not downright offensive. Instead of influencing our culture for good, churches bend over backwards to invite the culture into the church. No reasonable believer would deny that we need to speak to the culture in ways that communicate to that culture. No reasonable believer would ever deny that. But there is no biblical justification for assimilating the culture into the church. I hope you see what I mean by that. Yes, Jesus ministered to prostitutes. But he didn't become a prostitute to minister to prostitutes. He lifted them up from where they were and showed them something better. He showed them a better way. Surely we desire to be relevant to our culture. Let me make that clear up front. But in our quest for relevance, let us not jettison the timeless message that makes us relevant in the first place. In our study of Genesis 4... We learned previously that sin is not to be taken lightly. The believer will either master sin or sin will master the believer. And the way that sin is mastered is by moment-by-moment submission to the indwelling Holy Spirit's ministry in our life. I trust you remember the story of Karen Eretz and Bongo. Apparently that struck a nerve with many of you because I got more feedback on that than any illustration I've ever used. But I I hope you remembered what I was illustrating, and that's the fact that if you don't master sin, it's going to master you. That's the point. Cain did not heed the Lord's warning and allowed his anger to boil over into a murderous rage. He did not master sin. Sin mastered him. But last week I mentioned there's also a subplot in Genesis chapter 4, and that's what we'll cover today. The subplot is, What is appropriate worship? Why was Abel's offer accepted by the Lord and Cain's offer rejected? When it was time to worship, both brought something. Both brought offerings. It's important to point out that 
that the Hebrew word for offering is the same in both cases. The Levitical word in the Levitical writings, it's the same word in both cases. Both brought offerings. Both brought what they had. You see, in worship, you can't bring something you don't have. Cain had, had produce from the field. Abel had produce from the flocks. They both brought what they had. The, the problem is not in the identity of the offering. We saw last week as we introduced this, the problem, the reason why Cain's offering was not accepted and Abel's offering was accepted, was not in the, the, the issue of the identity of the offering. It was in the attitude of the offerer. It was in the attitude of the one who was worshiping. Abel's attitude was correct. Cain's attitude was not. You see, Abel brought, the Hebrew text goes out of its way to tell us, Abel brought the best of what he had, the first fruits. Cain just brought some of what he had. Now we may say, wow, isn't God being a little bit harsh there? Wasn't it okay for him just to bring some of what he had? Here's the point, and this this is one of the most important points in this chapter. It is a subplot, but it's an important point. When we worship, we need to bring the best of what we have, not just some of what we have. God's already given us the best of what he had, didn't he? He most certainly did. When he decided to provide for our salvation, he didn't just use some unknown angel from some, uh, some remote part of the universe that no one would know, that no one would miss. In order to provide the salvation, that so, we needed the solution to the sin problem. He had to sacrifice his very son, Jesus Christ. And the reason he did it is because he loves you. He loves you deeply. He loves you intensely. The Scriptures tell us as much. That God so loved the world. He so loved the world. Listen, it's true. He hates sin. That's true. But He loves you. He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should never perish but have everlasting life. God already has given you His very best because He loved you the very most. There are people, I'm sure, that love you and they love you intensely, but I'm going to tell you right now, nobody loves you more than God does. Nobody loves you more than God loves you. And He doesn't just talk about it. You know, sometimes we, we love people and we just talk about it. Sometimes we get so comfortable with a relationship, we don't even talk about it anymore. And that's when it's, it's not healthy. But a husband can say, or a wife can say, I love you to their spouse. And you can say it in a, in a very deep and passionate way, or you can just say it in almost a routine way. But sooner or later, most people want to be shown that they're loved, don't they? Sometimes it's big things, and sometimes it's little things. But we want, to, we want to have love demonstrated. And that's exactly what God did for us. He demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Adam and Eve did something terribly wrong. That's true. That is absolutely true. And what they did caused them to lose fellowship with God. But God loved them so much that he, that he came up with a solution. And the solution that He came up with might surprise us. But He came up with a solution of sacrificing His Son so that we might have eternal fellowship with Him. Now, God loves you. He's already given you His very best. And eternal life is available to you if you'll just but recognize that you need it. Recognize that we've all done things that God's not pleased with. Everybody that's ever walked this planet has. And if we will realize that and then realize we can't do anything to fix it. If we had 10 million years, we couldn't be good enough to fix it. 
How good do you have to be to satisfy a perfectly holy God? Well, you've got to be perfectly holy. And none of us attain that. All of us have sinned and fallen short of that standard. All of us. There's only one that didn't, and that's Jesus Christ. God gave you his very best. Jesus Christ purchased our salvation. He was our substitutionary atonement. He died in our place. That's incredible. That's stunning that God would do that. If I was God, I wouldn't have done that. I'll be right up front with you. I'd have said, to heck with humanity. I gave them a shot. They failed, and that's it. I would sure wouldn't sacrifice my son. I've got two sons. Both of them turned out to be blonde hair and blue-eyed. Good, good kids. Both of them are basically grown up now. Wonderful kids. I've had a daughter too, but in this illustration, I've got two sons. And I've got to tell you, on my best day, I would hesitate to sacrifice one of them for you. I'd sacrifice myself on a good day. But it would be a really good day, probably. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding about that. But, but it's, it's, it's another thing altogether to sacrifice your son, isn't it? Oh, how I admire people. Uh, mothers and fathers and, and wives and, and husbands and children that wait day after day when their father or their mother is off on some foreign field of battle, wondering if you're going to get the call that day that you've sacrificed your child for the good of a for a greater good, a good of a people. That's the only thing that I can find that comes close to what God did for us. The only thing. That's why I think those who, who serve in that profession should be honored. And there's a forgotten group that should be honored. And that's the parents and the spouses that wait home for them. Think of what they go through every day. Now, if that's true, and it is, how much more should we honor God our Father? For what he has done for us. So when God says, I want your best, I don't think it's an unreasonable expectation on his part. Because he's already given us his son, and by grace through faith, by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, simply by saying, Father, I trust Jesus Christ to forgive my sins and to grant me eternal life. He did all the work. He's already done all that. Is it that much to expect for him to, to expect back from us, not to pay him back, because we can never do that, but reverent worship? When we bring our best, whatever that is, when we bring our best to worship, when we bring worship, when we come into worship, not only do we bring what we have, but we must bring our best. The quality of the offerings rendered by Cain and Abel reflected the attitude of each of the men. That's the difference. The scriptures tell us that God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. You see, this is why we can't get on our high horse and start judging someone else's worship. I don't know what's in their heart. Only God knows what's in their heart. You know, we can look at the outward appearance, but only God knows what's in the heart. We can say, I don't like what that person's wearing. But God knows what's in their heart. And guess what? What's what's in your, your heart may not be quite as good as what's in their heart if that's the attitude that you have. I never forget this. I don't get an opportunity to do it often, but on one occasion I had to be out of town on a Sunday. I happened to be in, I'll say what city it was, it was in Dallas, and I was at a conference that couldn't be avoided, and it was a cold day, and I decided I want to go worship somewhere, and it was so cold, I started walking down the street because I didn't have a car, and it was so cold that I said, I'm going to go worship in the first place that looks like it's anywhere close to being orthodox. 
so I so I had my overcoat on and I came and, and I was dressed in my best suit that I the best suit that I had. And it turned out it's a fairly wealthy church that I ended up going into. It's, uh, certainly the building was wealthy, a multi, 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 multi-million dollar building. I sat down and nobody spoke to me. Nobody said a word. In fact, when I took my overcoat off, I never forget the lady next to me had a, had a fur. It was very, very nice fur, I could tell. And the guy was really, really well-dressed and he kind of looked at me like this. Either I was a visitor, but the church was so big I couldn't, I don't think that was it. I think he was looking at my suit. I kind of, it, it was best I had at the time, and nobody spoke to me at all, except for this look that I got. Now, sometimes my wife says I'm too sensitive about these looks, but I could tell that was a look that I got. <laughs> and I didn't like that look. But I didn't say anything about it because I was in church after all. Outside, I might have said something, but not inside. <laughs> then it came time to, for the song leader to get up, and the song leader did what song leaders sometimes do. We don't do it, but song leaders sometimes do. They said, why don't you get up now and greet everybody? And these people hadn't said a word to me, except for the look before that, got up and acted like that was their best buddy. Hey, how you doing? It's good to see you. Thanks for coming. I said, well, it's good to see you too. Maybe, maybe this is a nice place to visit after all. The sermon was fine. I had a, a decent time. And then after the service, I, I leaned over to, to shake hands with a fellow again. He just looked at me and walked off because it wasn't greeting time, I guess. <laughs> I don't think he thought I should be there. That's the impression I got. Well, if that's the attitude that he had, he didn't bring his best attitude in worship. Of course, then he calls me not to have my best attitude either for at least a few minutes. We need to bring our best. And it's our attitude is first and foremost. We can fool our fellow man when it comes to many things, including the quality of our worship, but we can't fool God. Because God looks at the heart. We can just look at the outside. I'm going to say this, and I don't mean to exaggerate at all. For the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, worship is the most important thing we do in life. Worship is the most important thing that we do in life. And furthermore, worship will be the most important thing that we do in eternity. There are two basic categories of worship. I'm going to call them individual worship and corporate worship. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ worship individually every day, hopefully all day. When we work, we worship. When we serve, we worship. We worship when we witness for Christ. We worship when we love our neighbor. We worship when we interact with the barista down at Starbucks making our cafe mocha latte or whatever it is that people get. I'm not a coffee drinker, so if I said that wrong, forgive me. We worship when we pray. The point is, everything that we do ought to be worship. If we're glorifying God in it. We worship when we go to the football game. We worship when we go to the basketball game. We worship when we cut the yard. All that can be worship individually if we're doing it for the right reasons and with the right attitude. If we're doing it as unto the Lord. I hope you see a trend here. We worship informally in everything we do, provided we're walking in fellowship with God when we do it. We all worship to a lesser or to a greater degree all week long. And then we come together periodically. As per the command of Scripture, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, we come together periodically and then we worship as a group. And that's what we've done here today. We could also say we're worshiping corporately today. 
just as, as a quick aside, and it wouldn't affect anyone here, but it may affect someone listening to this tape at a later time, but please don't fool yourself into thinking that you are walking in fellowship with God if you consistently and willfully disobey the command to assemble together. That's a command. It's just as much a command as don't steal or don't commit adultery. So don't, don't think that you're, unless, unless you're unable to or incapable of it somehow. But, but and some people don't have the opportunity to do that. But you must assemble yourself together when the opportunity places itself there for you. Al Ross again, quoting him, said, For worship to be as glorious as it should be, for it to lift people out of their mundane cares and fill them with adoration and praise, for it to be the life-changing and life-defining experience it was designed to be, it must be inspired by a vision so great and so glorious that what we call worship will be transformed into, from a routine gathering into a transcendent meeting with the living God. A transcendent meeting with the living God. How often is this transcendent meeting with the living God a reality? Not very often, I'm afraid. It might help us if we had a working definition of worship. What are we defining here? Dwight Pentecost, I think, had the most simple, succinct definition of worship I've ever heard. He said, worship is the response to revelation. Worship is the response to revelation. It's also been amplified this way. The apprehension of the revelation of a holy God will bring about an immediate response. We know something of God, then we respond to that, either individually or corporately. Now, today my subject is primarily corporate worship. But in the individual course, we learn something about God and then we respond to that. We respond by singing with our voice or giving of our resources or loving our neighbor or whatever it may be. We respond in that way. Remember John's response on the island of Patmos when he came face to face with God, with a resurrected Jesus Christ, the glorified Jesus Christ, not just the resurrected, but the glorified Christ. Remember what his response was? He didn't dance up and down, with all due apologies to one of my favorite Christian contemporary hymns. He didn't dance for Jesus at that point. He fell at his feet as though he were dead. That's the response. Because he recognized he was standing in the presence of the holy God of the universe. You remember Isaiah's response in Isaiah chapter 6? When he came face to face with God, the holiness of God. You remember what he said? Woe is me! For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. That was Isaiah. Isaiah. Woe is me. That was John to fall at his feet as though dead. That's a response to Revelation. You see that? They saw something of God, and they responded to it. Now, all of our response is not going to necessarily be that way. But when they came face to face with God himself, that's exactly what happened. As the revelation of God... And who God is becomes clear to us. We also have become clearer to us who we are. You see, I can come across as pretty good and pretty holy when I choose who I'm going to compare myself to. And you can too. We all can. But when we can compare ourselves to a holy God, we all come, we all of us come away looking pretty unholy. Don't we? 
we all come away looking that way. When we measure ourselves against ourselves, we can come out okay. But when we measure ourselves against God's own holiness and his own self-disclosure, his own revelation, we fall short of that glory. We fall short of that holiness. And we fall so short when we really look into who God is and his gracious revelation to us in the scriptures. We fall so short that there is no doubt as to where we stand or where we would stand if we were not recipients of divine mercy and divine grace. Worship is the activity of the new life in the believer, which, recognizing the fullness of the Godhead as it is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and His mighty redemptive acts, He seeks by the power of the Holy Spirit to render to the living God glory, honor, and submission, which are His due. Glory, honor, and submission, which are His due. That's what we're doing here today. We're giving to God glory, honor, and submission. At least that's what we're supposed to be doing. There are actually many aspects that the Bible calls worship. I'm going to mention eight of them to you today. Eight aspects of corporate worship. Now, there are many, many, many more aspects of individual worship than I'll mention here today. Many, many aspects. No matter what you're doing, if you're doing it as unto the Lord, it's worship. You can be a mother changing a baby's diaper, and if you're doing it as unto the Lord, that's worship. If that's what the Lord has given you to do, that's worship. But I'm talking about eight aspects this morning of corporate worship. This is where we'll spend the rest of our time together today. Eight biblical aspects of corporate worship are eight things that the Bible identifies as worship. The first, of course, we've already done it today, and that's singing. Making a joyful noise with our mouth. Singing. Now, the, the hymns that we sing we need to be as, as doctrinally correct as we can possibly get them. Remember that hymns are poetry, and sometimes poetic license is taken in hymns. But our singing needs to glorify God. Now, I know there's this big discussion in Christianity today about what kind of music should be played in a church. Should it be traditional hymnology or hymns, or should it be more contemporary music? You know what? I'm on the traditional side, but but when the day is over, I really don't care. Let me tell you what I care about. I care about the attitude of the person that's singing. And I care, does the form honor God? That's what I care about. We need to be very careful on both sides of this issue, not to be quite so judgmental as we have been. Used to, there was a time when it was the traditional folks that were very judgmental of the contemporary folks. You know what I mean. Very judgmental of the contemporary folks. Actually, the shoe's on the other foot now. You might not even realize it. A lot of the contemporary folks are very, very critical of the traditional folks. That ought not to be. Because the attitude of criticism is in itself unholy. We, ought, we need to be looking at our attitude. What, it is, what is, is it that's going through our souls? And are we singing the words, or are we just up there flapping our lips? Do we really mean it when we sing these words? How intense is our worship? Another aspect of worship is praying. The scriptures speak of this quite often. We've prayed today. I hope you prayed individually. We had a prayer meeting upstairs before we came down here. We had prayer when we started this. We'll pray when we finish. Prayer is an aspect of worship. Oh, what a privilege we have to go to the eternal God of the universe and open our thoughts or our mouths in corporate prayer and and tell Him what's on our mind. To to, To praise Him for who He is and to tell Him what we need. 
And he's told us to do that. Isn't that great? That's not a burden, is it? It's a great thing. It's not a burden to sing. If you really love God, you'll sing His praises. Now, we do it in other areas, don't we? While we may not do it with a melody, we sing the praises of our favorite quarterback, don't we? We sing the praises of a, of a first baseman that can hit a left, left-handed home run. We sing their praises. We stand up and give them standing ovations. We know how to do it. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily what we have to do in, in church either. But I'm tell, what I'm saying is when someone has done something that you really appreciate, you do sing their praises. You tell everybody about them. And that's what worship is. Isn't God fantastic? Listen to what he did for me this week. That's worship. So we sing and we pray. Another aspect that's called worship in the Scriptures is the public reading of Scripture. Paul tells Timothy, don't, don't set that on the back burner. The public reading of Scripture. When we read the Scripture from the pulpit, so important. That's pure 100% Word of God. Now, Bible exposition, I'm, I hope, would come close. But it's not pure 100% Word of God. All of us throw our opinions in, whether welcomed or unwelcomed, from time to time. But Scripture reading is part of worship. And the exposition of the Word is an aspect of worship. The, the, the Proverbs say in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 9, He who turns his ear away from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Did you hear that? Did you hear it? He who turns his ear away from the hearing of the law, even his prayer is an abomination. And the word translated abomination there means something that is morally repugnant. And it was often used in the Old Testament to describe the worship of idols. Did you get that? Don't let it fly past. The exposition of the word is an aspect of worship. And if, and if we don't listen to the law, or in our case, listen to the word of God, that's another way for saying that, then even what we, what we do afterwards is an abomination to God if we refuse his self-disclosure. Why would we think anything else we do is going to be pleasing to Him? He saved us, and for that we fall on our knees and say thank you. But He didn't stop there. He disclosed Himself to us. That's the difference between a deist and a theist. A deist believes that, that God's out there, that He's transcendent. But a, a deist doesn't believe that God is imminent, meaning everywhere present, present here with us. A deist believes that God created everything and then left it alone. A theist, a theist believes that an infinite personal God created the universe and still has activity within the universe. We are theists. If we don't accept his self-disclosure, his theistic self-disclosure, and marvel in it and react to it, then we can sing our hearts out all day long. And it means nothing it means nothing. Give me someone who can't carry a tune in a bucket any day over an opera singer for the Metropolitan Opera, and I'll take that, I'll take that person any day if, if the heart of the person who can't carry a tune is right. That's what God wants. Listen, He knows if you can sing or not. He made those vocal cords. He knows very well whether you can sing or not. He knows what's in your heart, and all he expects from you is just use those vocal cords that he gave you. 
That's all he's expecting of you. And he gives you the opportunity to pray, to listen to Scripture, and to hear the Scripture taught. Back to this prayer. How in the world can something good like prayer become morally repugnant to God? When does worship become an abomination? Because prayer is an aspect of worship. How could, how could prayer become an abomination before God? And this is how it happens. It happens when believers attempt to worship God apart from the knowledge of God. That's when it happens. And that's where the battle lines are drawn in our culture today. Believers are attempting to worship God apart from the knowledge of God. They try to do it apart from divine self-disclosure in the Scriptures. Oh, they'll use natural revelation. Oh, aren't the trees wonderful and the birds and the butterflies and the sky? Yes. Aren't the mountains beautiful? Yes. Isn't that waterfall majestic? Yes. But there's so much more to God's self-disclosure than that. When does worship, the attempt to worship, become an abomination? It becomes an abomination when we try to substitute our God for the God of the Bible. Apart from a knowledge of God derived from His Word, derived from His Word, we are forced to submit a God of our own choosing. We substitute a God of our own imagination, and then we submit to that. You see, if we won't take God's self-disclosure, I'm going to make up some God. Mankind is hopelessly religious. We're all going to worship something. And either I take the God that I worship from His Holy Word, or I make a God up, but I'm going to do something. And then I, and I submit to the God that I've made up. Can you imagine why God wouldn't care for that? Guess what that's called? Idolatry. That's exactly what it is. When we attempt, and I think that's one of the very first of the commandments, isn't it, to avoid that? When we attempt to create our own God and then bow down to that, all that is is idolatry. And that's what we do when we attempt to worship a God that's not the God of the Bible. Worship becomes more me-centered because, after all, I'm the one that created this God. So why wouldn't it be me-centered? You get the point? Now, I didn't do that consciously, of course. I'm not in any way implying that of our friends or of ourselves sometimes. But apart from the Spirit working in each of us lives, through the Word of God, the Spirit is quenched. The Spirit's not working. He's quenched when that happens. God is not pleased. Why is God not pleased? Why is the prayer of one who refuses to hear His Word an abomination? Because He's not the one being worshipped. Do you see? Something else is being worshipped. Something you're calling God. Something we call God in our own imaginations. That's what's being worshipped. If we don't get it from the Word of God. What develops then is the type of Christian idolatry and unfortunately this has become fashionable bible teaching has become secondary at best and is being pushed aside in many worship services today i was in a worship service in another country that i won't name at this time and i was supposed to speak there i'd come a long way to speak and the pastor told me right before i was to, uh, to get up he said listen i don't want you to do a bible study i just want you to do your testimony and boy, I was a little taken back by that. And I said, well, first of all, my testimony is not that exciting. I was saved at seven years old. I mean, it never really got in a whole lot of trouble, at least not to speak of. 
Went like my family face down in the gutter in New Orleans, like Hal Lindsey, and had this incredible testimony that motivates everybody. I said, my testimony is real short and it's not very exciting. I trusted Christ to forgive my sins and to grant me eternal life when I was a little boy. I said, plus, I didn't come 5,000 miles to give my testimony. That's not what I do. He said, well, nevertheless, I'm the pastor, you're the guest, and I'd like for you to give your testimony. And if it's not about yourself, then talk about your church. So you know what I did? But it came my time to get up there and speak, and he gave me 30 minutes to do my testimony. Now, mind you, his sermon was four minutes long. He gave me 30 minutes to do my testimony. So my testimony about me, myself, and my church was the importance of preaching the Word of God in church. That's what makes our church unique in Houston, Texas, is that we preach the Word, and I wouldn't be satisfied with anything less if I was a congregant, <laughs> thinking that I would be finding my own way back to the train station and then to the airport. I was wrong about that. He came to me and embraced me and said how wonderful that was, and it was convicting to him. I didn't do it out of meanness. I did it because that's what the Spirit motivated me to do, but that was my testimony that day. You see, many pastors, and this, was, this man is my friend. I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to be overly critical of him, but many pastors have become convinced that the way to grow their churches is not to preach the Word. Not to preach the Word. He's with the Lord now, so I'm going to tell you a very poignant and very tender story that a man named Bill Drew told me quite some years ago. Bill Drew was the pastor of Pine Valley Baptist Church. Back in, I think it was 1999, the Bay Area Bible Church merged with Pine Valley Baptist Church, became Pine Valley Bible Church. Bill Drew had been the pastor back in the 60s, the building that we worship in on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights over on Broad Street. That building was built through the blood, sweat, and tears of Bill Drew and his congregants. And Bill visited me one day after our after I had after our church had been meeting there for quite some time, and the whole place was full, and it was energetic, and he, he was very tender, and he called me aside, and he said, listen, Bruce, I want to talk to you for a minute. I said, sure. And he's, uh, Bill, I think, was mid-70s at the time, and we went into the hallway there where the gymnasium is. Some of you can picture that, and, we, and then we ducked into the kitchen, because I tell you, he was getting a little emotional. And I said, what, what's the matter? What's on your mind, Bill? He said, you know, I, I look out at that audience today, and it was full, and it was energetic, and I just want you to know that there was a time when I ministered that that audience was the same way. And I said, I know, I heard about it. And he said, um, but by the time I left, it wasn't that way. There were just a few people coming. And I said, well, I know about that, too. He said, well, I want to tell you why that happened. I said, well, I already know why that happened, Bill. I said, it happened. You know, demographics change. You know, you know neighborhoods change. You know, people get older. What, you know, whatever, that, that happens. And he said, no, Bruce, that's not why it happened. And I said, well, then tell me why it happened. He said that, uh, he gave me the year. He said, I went to a particular convention and attended not the plenary section, session, but a smaller group so workshop session in which they told us, if we wanted to grow our churches, do not preach the word on Sunday mornings. He said, your job is to give people the gospel on Sunday mornings. Leave the preaching of the word to the Sunday school. And his eyes were misting up. And I, I could tell he's very emotional with that. And he said, you know, you know what happened to this church? I said, tell me. He said, I'm, I'm what happened. I changed my ministry philosophy. I quit teaching the word to my people. And the people quit coming. I starved them. He said, I'm the reason this church went down. And then he wept. I felt so bad for him. Because he had a great reputation as a Bible teacher. Did he not? He certainly did. He was a great Bible teacher, and some of you knew him well. 
and I haven't used his name before now because I didn't want to do that until he was with the Lord, and, and the Lord forgave me for that, and he, he, he ended up going on and having a great ministry elsewhere. But I'll never forget those words. And then he looked me right with those tear-filled eyes and said, Bruce, never quit preaching the word because that's what people need. It was a very, very tender moment. So you see these new movements, one's called the emerging church, the emerging church movement. These new movements that either try to get you not to preach the word or to, to make an abridged version, a Reader's Digest version. They're doing much more harm than they are good. Some of them are even openly ridiculing the preaching of the word, which is sinful. On the other hand, the psalmist said in Psalm 119, I rejoiced, I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies. That's God's divine self-disclosure. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies more than in all riches. What do we value more than anything in life? God's salvation, of course. And then after salvation is self-disclosure. And remember what worship is? All worship is is the response to that self-disclosure. That's what it is. Instruction of God is an aspect, it's a very vital aspect of biblical worship. There are others, just a few, it won't take me long to go over these. Giving is an aspect of biblical worship. We saw that with Cain and Abel. That was really the issue there. Cain brought some of what he had. Abel brought the best. Now, I'm not here to tell you today what you should give. I'm not going to do that. I'm not even here to tell you today what percentage you should give because the New Testament doesn't do that. It doesn't do that. Whatever a man purposes in his own heart, that should he give. But he, but he shouldn't do it with a bad attitude, you see. The Scriptures tell us to do it with the right attitude, to do it joyfully. Because why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. Do you notice what it didn't say? It didn't say God loves the X number of dollars worth of gift. He doesn't care about that. He owns the cattle on a thousand, on a thousand hills. The amount that's in the, the, the amount poor on the check is not relevant to him. He wants to know what was in your heart when you wrote it. And did you bring the best or did you just bring some leftovers? Now, I will say this as a principle of giving. And this is, this is more than a suggestion. I think this is, this is the principle of giving. Whatever it is you choose to give, you ought to decide up front. This is the amount of money I have that God has provided me with this month. Okay, I'm going to, take, I'm going to do my giving out of this, and then I'm going to pay my rent out of this, and I'm going to pay my bills out of this, and I'm going to have my recreation out of this. And don't give him the leftovers. Get, take his part off the top. Now, whatever that is, it's got to be purposed in your heart by the Holy Spirit. And I would never be so presumptuous as to tell you something the Bible doesn't tell you. But I'm just saying that you need to bring your best. That's giving. And it's a privilege to give. After all, we can never outgive God, can we? God's already given far more than we could ever give in a million lifetimes. A billion out infinitum. So giving is an aspect of biblical worship. The Lord's table, we celebrated that last week, is an aspect of biblical worship. Water baptism is an aspect of biblical worship. The Lord's table done many times, regularly. Keep on doing this until I see you again. And then water baptism is done once. Water baptism is an outward expression of an inward conviction of faith in Christ. It's done once. It's a public testimony of one's faith. And here's the final one that, that is identified, at least in an oblique way, and that's fellowship between believers. We don't think about that one sometimes. But when believers gather together in a corporate way and love one another, as the scriptures have commanded us to do, and I'm not talking about just shaking one's hand or 
or given a hug and things like that. I'm talking about the attitude that's behind all that. The attitude that's behind the hug is what really counts. When, when fellowship is of such a nature that it reflects the glory of God, it too qualifies as worship. Anything that I say to you is for our church alone. I'm not trying to establish policy in any other church or uh, whatsoever. Just trying to give biblical instruction. Each church must make a decision as to, as to its primary purpose. Some churches, the, the churches that have decided to compete, which is such an ugly word in Christianity, such a sinful word in Christianity, we all serve the same Lord. Where did this competition thing come from? In fact, I know of one pastor here in Houston who... who um, retired or was retired he was forced to retire the reason he was forced to retire is that his board did not feel like and this came from his mouth to my ears his board did not feel like that that church was competing well enough with a very well-known church down the street that's sinful my friends that's sinful competition should be nowhere found in the christian community we all work for the same lord Some churches today have made a conscious decision that the local church should be a soul-winning station, meaning that its primary purpose, or the primary purpose of Sunday worship, is the evangelization of the person who's not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The seeker church movement has adopted this particular philosophy. Now, evangelism is a good thing. It's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And it should be done at a Sunday morning worship service. The gospel should be clearly presented at a Sunday morning worship service. But when evangelism is the primary focus of a worship service, biblical instruction tends to be almost absent from the pulpits. And it's accomplished either before or after in Sunday schools or small groups or whatever, perhaps a midweek group. In these churches, entertainment has become front and center. Do whatever you have to do, I was told one time, to draw a crowd. One time I was told that my ministry philosophy would never, ever work. It would never work. And I will tell you some of the things that were proposed. To draw a crowd. I said, that's not the way it works. Worship is primarily for believers. Certainly you give the gospel. Of course you do. But worship is primarily... A time when believers gather, those who have trusted Christ gather, and express their response to revelation. In praying and singing and giving and all the things we just mentioned. Now, if your primary purpose is evangelism, then entertainment, an entertainment-focused worship service is perfectly consistent with that. Biblical instruction makes no sense if a plurality of the people that are in attendance don't know the Lord. Of course it makes no sense. It's not that the pastors of these churches cannot teach the Word of God. Most of them want to. They can and do on occasion. But it's not the primary ministry philosophy. That's why you need to be very careful. We've got to be very careful with what our ministry philosophy is. Our ministry philosophy with regard to our Sunday morning worship, with regard to Wednesday and Wednesday night, Sunday night too, is to glorify God. That's why we're here. To praise Him. And of course part of that is giving the gospel. Of course it is. It would be unloving if we didn't. 
But if that's all you do, is it any wonder that believers starve? Evangelization of the, of the unbeliever is a noble idea. And it's one that it is commanded of all of us. Believe me. But the local church was never designed to be primarily a soul-winning station. That's not the purpose, the biblical purpose. Again, it should be presented, the gospel should be presented whenever, whenever a group of people, more than five or ten people are gathered together, because you just never know who's there and knows the Lord and who's there and doesn't. But biblically, the local church is a place where believers gather to worship corporately. That's the biblical model where believers gather to worship corporately, to love one another. And can you imagine what a wonderful thing it would be if someone came into to the congregation and didn't know the Lord and saw believers loving one another? Isn't that a great thing? And to hear God proclaimed unapologetically? Isn't that a great thing? Where, where praises are sung with, with voices that really act like we believe what we say we believe? Wouldn't that be a great thing? That's a great apologetic. That's a great defense of the Christian faith as opposed to the opposite. Listen, if we don't love one another, if we don't express any of our adoration to God, why would anyone want to become a Christian? If we're Christians and we, when we think God is just a second thought in our lives, why would they want that? Why would they want it? But if they see a heart that's on fire for God in a positive way, one who loves God with, with every ounce of their being because they know what's been done for them, then they're going to want something of that. It's in the local church that the saints are instructed in how to do the work of the ministry. You know, most evangelism should take place in the coffee shops, across a breakfast table, in the break room at work, on the golf course, at the football game, wherever it may be. One-on-one -on -one evangelism. That's the biblically commanded evangelism. So there are at least eight aspects, as I close now today, of worship that is called worship biblically, of corporate worship, singing, praying, the public reading of Scripture, the exposition of the Word of God, giving, celebration of the Lord's table, water baptism, and fellowship between believers. Abel's offering was accepted because Abel brought his best. Cain, on the other hand, did not. What is acceptable worship in God's eyes? What is appropriate worship as far as God is concerned? It's as simple as this. It's when we bring God our best. When we recognize God for who he is and for what he has done and when we respond accordingly. With our voices with our financial resources, with our concentration, with our love, with our actions, with our life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, forgive us for oftentimes we don't bring our best. Oftentimes, corporately, we just bring some of what we have. But Father, through your Holy Spirit working in each one of us, I pray that in the days and weeks and months and years to come that we would truly bring our best and worship you with all that we are with our very life. Father, you have given your son's life for us, and we thank you for that. We, we've received the greatest gift we could ever receive, eternal life by grace through faith, faith in your son. 
And now, Father, as recipients of that wonderful gift, may we bow our knee and raise our voices to you in one continuous chorus of praise as long as you give us breath on this earth. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.